Welcome to my basement, everybody. We've got a great couple of guests on the show today. We've got Charles Cecil, who runs Revolution Software in the UK, and he is the game designer behind a brand new game called Beyond a Steel Sky. And Dave Gibbons, the celebrated artist, uh, co-creator on Watchmen, and also the art director on Beyond a Steel Sky, joins us. They both join us. Are you guys both in the UK right now? We are, yes. Yep. Very cool, very cool. Now you guys go back, you have had relationships for how long? How long have you two known each other? Charles? Wow. Well, now, I mean, despite the fact that we do look so young. <laughs> well, we I actually, Well, Dave does. I, I haven't aged quite so well, but you know. Um, I, I actually was working for uh, Activision, uh, a, a previous iteration of Activision back in the 80s. Um, and which seems so long ago, but it was just the other day. And um, we, we, were ex we, we were interested in licensing Watchmen, so I got hold of Dave and it turned out that we couldn't for whatever reason. But then when um, I founded Revolution in 1990, um, we, we started writing a game Beneath the Steel Sky from about 1992, 1993. And I thought, you know, we loved obviously Watchmen. We loved the idea of in theory working with Dave. I reached out. I was absolutely blown away when he kind of accepted the, the opportunity to partner with us on this game. Um, and, you know, we'd love the idea of including a sort of comic aspect of it, a comic book aspect of it. And um, it was great. And, and, and Dave, over to you. Yeah, well, my son had been a gamer really since he could walk. And I'd always been kind of intrigued by video games. And I was really happy to talk to Charles. And I think from the very beginning, Charles and I got, got on very well together. And it became apparent to me that actually creating a video game was not that much different than creating a comic. You know, and I think the, the, the real parallel was that I'd spent my adolescence sitting in my room drawing comics, hoping that one day I could become a comic artist. Whereas Charles and his crew had sat in their bedrooms writing games in the hope <laughs> that one day they could do it for real. So we felt like very kindred spirits. And one of the things I've always loved in the comics I've done is the collaboration. If you're lucky enough to work with a good writer or a good editor, you know, that's, that's where the real joy comes. And I found that we really, really gelled very well and enjoyed working on the game together. And it never really felt like work. It just felt like having fun and <laughs> coming up with amusing stuff. Um, so that was what really got me in there. In the early days, Dave was a, a cheap date. Um, oh, was he? <laughs> he, he? He used to come up to, um, the, we were based in the English uh, fishing city of Hull, Kingston-upon-Hull. And um, Dave would look forward to the bacon butty, which was a, a thick bat with big, big bits of greasy bacon and cheap margarine. And they were great, weren't they, Dave? That, that was what fueled the creative spirit, really. I used to fall, <laughs> fall off, the, off the train journey, which was rather a long train journey, and they'd immediately put a bacon butty, a bacon sandwich in, in front of me. And then fueled by that, we, we were able to go on and make video game magic. That is awesome. Uh, I spent my childhood, by the way, dreaming of one day being able to make a TV show uh, about comic books and video games. And I was in my basement back then, and now I'm back in my basement making video wow. about comic books yeah. and video games. And uh, a couple of uh, real legends that have proven themselves over time. What is the secret, Charles? How do you keep a game studio running for 30 years? And how do you kind of navigate the twists and turns of this uh, incredibly arduous business? Well, thank you. There are two, two things. Well, there are probably many more than two things. But the two things, first of all, is an utter respect for our community. 
mm. and not in any way taking them for granted or thinking they're fools. You know, we are a small independent developer. If we write a ga bad game, we go bankrupt. It's as simple as that. So, you know, um, towards the end of the project, I, I wake up at two o'clock in the morning and, you know, it's like, oh gosh, why didn't we do this? Why can't we do this? Perhaps I can do that. And um, it, 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 I hope it comes across as a passion within which, you know, we really care about what we, because gamers come to us and they say, I remember your game from 25 years ago. And this is exactly what it is. And the extraordinary thing about the video games medium, which I'm very proud to be part of, is that in telling a story, we tell it in a way that is more powerful than could be told in any other way, if we get it right. The second is I go around collecting talented people. Mm. And uh, like Dave, um, I mean, seriously, um, and I never let them go. And, and that's the problem. It's like Hotel California. You know, you can check out, but you can never leave. Um, yeah. I, I just, he's all about in, finding in brilliant fact, people. In fact, I'm actually chained up in Charles's basement. That's, that's <laughs> the way he works. I know you've got your basement, but Charles has, has got his. No, I think for me that what you, what you have to do to have a long career is to keep coming up with new challenges, not to fall into the rut of always yeah. doing the same thing. And as I say, there are many similarities between creating comics and creating video games, but whole new different sets of challenges and limitations and possibilities. And I think that's one of the things that, that keeps me enthusiastic. Dave, we've got Watchmen uh, still vital and still in the news in uh, 2020. When you were working on um, the comic series in the 80s, did you ever imagine that it would have a legacy like that and it would be so uh, pertinent even 40 years later it feels like it's it's incredible no i mean i think if we'd have known that it was going to be around for that long it it, it would have been such an intimidating thing to do if, if somebody said you've got to come up with a comic book that's going to last for 40 years you you, you just couldn't do it it was really just we did the comic that we we wanted to read and yeah. and it turned out to be the comic that a lot of other people wanted to read and i think for many reasons a lot of it to do with timing um, it, it was just there at the right time and it became the book that if you heard about graphic novels and went into a comic book store and said, hey, I'm, I, I, you know, I want to read some graphic novels, where shall I start? That would probably be the first thing they gave you as a copy of Watchmen. And then I guess the movie kept it going a bit, a bit longer and now there's been the wonderful HBO TV series, which again has brought um, attention to it. So uh, yeah, you couldn't have planned it. It's just serendipity, I guess. Were you a fan? Were you appreciative of the artistic choices that the HBO show kind of picked up the baton and, and ran with? Yeah, well, I mean, there was the movie adaptation of Watchmen, which I thought was a, was a, a, a decent new version in a, in a different medium. I wasn't yeah. so thrilled about the comic book prequels and sequels that DC Comics did. Yes. And initially, I was a little bit skeptical about the TV series, but when it became apparent what Damon Lindelof wanted to do, it was so radical and so much in the spirit of the original book that I very quickly got on board with it. I mean, I've watched the whole thing, obviously. I had very little creative input other than to give them a, a few notes. But I've honestly watched episodes of it and thought, you know, that's one of the best hours of TV I've ever seen. Yeah. And they came, and they came up with stuff that, 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 that gave me the reaction why didn't we think of that? It's so obvious. <laughs> Why didn't we think of it? So, yeah, I really take my hat, hat off to those guys. They've been very faithful to, to the original, but they've, uh, they've shown such um, originality in 
vision that I'm just thrilled by the whole thing. That's awesome. Charles, I've, I've learned that um, you looked uh, to creators like uh, Terry Gilliam and his movie Brazil and also Orwell's 1984 as a bit of a source of inspiration for Beneath the Steel Sky. Is that all applicable to Beyond the Steel Sky? Oh, oh, very much so, yeah. Uh, actually, I, I, um, I, I get to meet uh, Terry Gilliam quite regularly now. Uh, and I tell him that he was very inspirational in Beneath the Steel Sky. Um, and, uh, and I'm not sure that he cares too much, but it's nice <laughs> to be able to tell him. Um, really, the, 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 obviously, 1984 is a seminal book. And um, his Brazil was going to be called 1984 and a half. And yeah. perhaps it should have been. Um, but the, the, two, the two films that really, uh, obviously we had the comic book influence and we're delighted to be working with Dave. From a film perspective, the relationship between Foster and Joey was very much informed by a film called Stand By Me, which mm. you may or may not know, but it's about kids and it's kids growing up. And the writer, Dave Cummins, and I just loved that, but also Brazil because it was just so wacky. And, but at the same time, it, you weren't sure whether you should gasp or, 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 or laugh. And... So we, Re Revolution was created very much in response to Sierra, who are fantastic, of course they are, Sierra Online, but my God, they took themselves seriously. And, <laughs> you know, um, something like, um, you know, the excellent King's Quest. But, you know, King's Quest is King Graham in Daventry. Now, if you're English, you know that Daventry is next to Luton Airport. There's, like, if you were going to have a, a kingdom, the one place you would never put it would be Daventry. <laughs> and so what we were kind of doing was trying to create, uh, um, you know, this, 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 this sense of fun um, and in many ways mocking. And uh, actually, LucasArts started at a very similar time to us. Sure, and, yeah. and I think very much they were doing the same thing. It was like, this should be fun. We should be, we should be playing. But the big difference, of course, is that we were writing puzzles that we were trying to make as logical as possible within the context of the world, within the context of the story, rather than slapstick. And, yes. you know, I'm very proud of the fact that people do remember our stories. They do remember our puzzles. And I think that's because by doing it that way, you draw the player in and they don't feel they're working to move. They feel that they're engaging with the narrative and that the narrative is driving it forward. And it, it, is it that same kind of design philosophy that you're applying to Beyond a Steel Sky or has the technolo technology allowed you to branch off in a bunch of new ways that you'd never tried before? Well, in, in many ways, we're going back to what we did originally, which mm. was this idea of trying to transcend just the point and click adventure. So Beyond the Steel Sky is unashamedly an adventure, but it sits above what, what, the, what the difficulty in writing uh, adventure games is that you, you have the inventory, you have um, characters that you can talk to, you have hotspots, and there aren't that many permutations. So you can go down one of two ways. You can think really hard about the puzzles and, and, and the logic, and, or you can put slapstick puzzles in. And we were very much going for the serious story with humorous characters that went beyond. So a puzzle that I was very proud of from the original game was that there's a Yorkshireman. Um, I'm in York in, in, in Yorkshire. So why we are so rude about Yorkshiremen in our games, I have no idea. I hope that nobody <laughs> you know, notices. But um, he was very proud of the fact that he, he had a, a coat made out of the last beavers in the world and that they were now extinct. And, you know, so that was the sort of ludicrousness of it. But what, what he did was he wandered around the world responding to that world. And that world could be subverted by the player character. So in this particular puzzle that I remember so vividly, 
he would come out, he would put his card into an elevator. It, if the player had subverted the system and taken away his credit, he wouldn't go down. So therefore he would behave differently. And I felt that what would be interesting would be to explore how you could write a game that actually sat above a system where characters moved around the world responding to the subversion by the player. So for example, in very early on, you come across a, a drinks dispenser and you can hack into it. And there are three elements. If you have permission, it'll give you a drink. If you don't, then it'll politely refuse. And if it thinks that you're, you're trying to steal it, then it'll set an alarm off. And what you can do is you can actually move the logic around so that if somebody does have permission, the alarm goes off. And if the alarm goes off, then they're surprised and a droid gets a lot and the whole world changes. And what the vision of this game was, was to be unashamedly an adventure game, but sitting above this. So the complexity emerges from behavior. It doesn't from uh, contrived puzzles. So for example, we give the player a crowbar right from the very beginning, because we're making the statement, we're not going to design puzzles where you could just kick the door down. Mm. Now you do have puzzles where you have to kick the door down, but you use your crowbar, that's fine. So that, that forced us. And then also any objects that you have, have an obvious uh, reason. So you're not finding, you know, cork, cork covered rulers that, you know, bounce because they're cork and then go out of the way or whatever, you know, it's none of that. You get objects You're still taking pot know... shots at LucasArts. You're still doing No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I love the monkey wrench. I love yeah. the monkey wrench. And I particularly loved, I particularly loved sending a hamster through time. That was genius. <laughs> Trust me, Charles, I could never figure those out either. And I, I told Tim <laughs> Schaefer that too, I was, and, and, you know, and Ron Gilbert. I'm like, I don't, I'm too dumb for your games, guys. I can't figure these things out. So you, you guys oh. seem to be offering the alternative to that with a point and click adventure. Well, the, the thing is that what our vision is very much that if you, you can solve any puzzle, but take the time to explore the world, see how characters are responding, what you can do. And hopefully people will never need to go to the hints. We have a hint system, of course, yeah. because people don't want to be frustrated, but hopefully, hopefully people will find that instead of looking into the game designer's mind and finding that you, you know, you've got to do this, that, and the other, that actually by exploring the world, the logic of the world, the logic of the characters, the logic of their motivations will actually allow the solution to become clearer and clearer. Wonderful. Dave, are, do, do you kind of see your work in the game as, um, you know, analogous to like a Ralph McQuarrie kind of designing everything and, and letting uh, the, the creators take your visions and, and, and bring them to life? Yeah, it has kind of worked like that. I mean, from when Charles and I first talked about doing the game, I was taking a fairly high level view of the story and the kind of mood of the thing. And then it boiled down to individual character designs or environment designs and odd little bits of business in, 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 in the game. But it was the thing that I really love doing, which is to generate ideas quickly, because mm -hmm. you sit down and do a, do a kind of, you know, mind download thing. And the first five or 10 things you do are okay. And then just when you think you've run out of ideas, that's when the really good ideas come. So I'm, I'm able to sit at my drawing tablet and just do dozens and dozens of drawings and just e e email them off to Charles and get feedback and then do more and more. So it's, it's a really dynamic way of working and adjusting the characters to suit the story and the gameplay. Um, ad ad adapting the storyline to fit the gameplay because there has to be a good dramatic story. Yeah. Um, so uh, 
as, as I say, it really comes down to the collaboration, which is the thing that I really love. After so many years of sitting in a room on my own, just drawing ears and fingers and feet and things like that, <laughs> to have a broad view and to be involved at a high level is, is a real thrill. Do you, when people look at Beyond a Steel Sky, will they, will they identify it as Dave Gibbons' work? Is this something that you could hold up against your comic art and say, well, this, this is my style? Yeah, well, the, the whole idea was to make it look like a comic book. And, mm. and there were some rather wonderful technical people who made the rendering style, the tune rendering style, look really like it was a hand-drawn comic. It's a much more complicated thing than, than you might expect, you know, to keep that line around things constant, no matter how big or small the figure or the object is. So that was a wonderful technical breakthrough. Uh, and the, the other thing that, that happened here was, again, we do have a comic book, an actual comic book, which is an introduction to the thing. With the first game, it was the best comic book I could draw. So very detailed, very interesting and, and dramatic. But it linked up to the game. And in the game, all the characters were tiny little sprites, about <laughs> yes. 10 pixels tall. So it was kind of a sleight of hand trick to say, oh, those, those blocky little guys, this is what they really look like. But in this game, we've actually been able to de design the characters, put them in the game, and then draw the comic book based on how they appear in the game. So the whole thing feels kind of seamless. And the comic book is also a motion comic, which means that, that there's sound, there's spoken word, there's atmosphere. So it's, it's a really smooth transition from what, what is a hand-drawn comic book into, into a game which looks as if it's a hand-drawn game. And I think that hand-drawing feel gives it a lot of warmth and a lot of personality, you know, rather than just being fairly bland, photorealistic CG rendering. It's got a kind of crackle to it and a texture that I think makes it look like a comic I've drawn, I guess. That's awesome. Charles, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, working with Apple and, and making this a, a premiere on Apple Arcade. How did that all come together? And, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on Apple Arcade as uh, a, a, a delivery system and as a way to, to get to gamers that may not think of video games in well, the traditional way? Let me answer that two, two ways. The yeah. first, first one is that at, at the end of the 90s, um, the adventure was effectively dead because publishers were not interested in yeah. supporting it. And the big breakthrough, and we actually closed the, the studio down for a few years. And then the big break came uh, in 2008 when somebody from Apple UK phoned up and uh, we were just blown away that, you know, this guy had phoned us up and he said, uh, I think your games might work really well on our platform. And we went, wow. So we produced um, Beneath the Seal Sky, which was at the mighty resolution of 320 by 200. Every pixel counts at that resolution. Um, and by incredible good luck, um, the, the iPhone screen at that time for the first generation was 320 yeah. um, And then we brought Broken Sword across and that was 64480, which happened to be the size. I mean, it was incredible. And then Broken <laughs> Sword 5, 2 and Bren 5. And by the time we did Broken Sword 5, you know, it was Retina, but we could produce games in Retina at that point. And, you know, I'd say to Apple, God, you guys are brilliant. You've, you've kind of saved our lives. And, 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 and they would say, you're helping our platform, uh, you know, thank you. And there was this real mutual respect, which I just absolutely loved. So that's great. You know, we were talking to them um, one day and, you know, they, they mentioned in top secret that, you know, this subscription service was, 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 was potentially coming along. And what I really loved about it is that on um, the app store, 
you know, as, as you can appreciate, 90x percent, 95 percent probably is free to play. We're a premium game at, at five dollars, and that probably represents one percent of the market. Yeah. And and what what is genius about Apple Arcade, particularly at five dollars a month, is that all of the from our perspective is that all of those people that would never have considered the 99 percent of people that would never have considered buying our game for five dollars are now coming into the Apple Arcade ecosystem, and they will play our games, and hopefully they'll find that actually there is more than free to play because. This is a story that will take you 12 hours to play and, and then it's over. And, and obviously there's no in-game purchases. It's, it's, it's going back to what we've always done because we've never really embraced free to play. So for us, it's a great opportunity. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm of the mind that uh, uh, games should have value and um, they should be developed with an idea that they should cost something. Uh, but I recognize that market conditions are always going to shift and change and we're on this subscription path now. Do you think that this, this is the future for for video games in general, the, the, the sort of the Netflix kind of model of uh, being able to access huge libraries like that? Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, what, when, when Tim Cook announced um, Apple Arcade, he, he was very impressive. He said, you know, the App Store is the biggest video game um, store in the world. Mm. Um, so, you know, Apple have an enormous amount of clout. They've got, you know, an incredible name. And now, you know, the, this, this latest, or, or for the last couple of years, you know, the hardware is just extraordinary. And, you know, I'm really proud of how the, how the game looks, particularly at a high end. And, you know, what, um, if, if we can go back, if you don't mind me just sort of ranting slightly or going off, off, off topic, you know, what, by, by, by adopting this sort of comic book look, you know, it looks great on big screens because what you can do is you can look around the world, you can see what's important, you can see what hotspots, you know, are likely to be of relevance. But on a smaller screen, like an iPhone or a small iPad, it also works particularly well because what you've got is you've got all that information crammed into a smaller area. Mm. And so, you know, not only did we adopt the comic book look from an aesthetic perspective, but also from the gameplay perspective as well. It, it, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with how it's turned out. That's wonderful. Uh, Dave, I know that um, uh, working with Charles was maybe your introduction to, to crafting video games. I'm curious mm -hmm. if, you, if you have stayed as a player, if, if it's, it piqued your interest enough that you kept playing some, some, some games over the years. I have to be absolutely honest with you. It, it isn't my thing, but my son is a huge gamer. He's, him, him and his pals do a podcast in the UK, Big Red Barrel UK. Right on. And, and yeah, and and so I I pick up from him what's what's going on, and if if there's a game I'm particularly interested in, I'll get him to play through a bit of it for me. Indeed, I was involved in a thing a few a few years ago where one of the um, one of the uh, newspapers over here wanted to get people who didn't play games to review games. So it was people like me and some actors and some radio people. And we, we went off and played these games. My son was thrilled because not only were we given the games, but we were given the consoles to play them on. So we ended oh, up with a, new, with a new Xbox and a new PlayStation. <laughs> um, so yeah, so my son keeps me um, abreast of things. I did have a little involvement with a game called No Man's Sky, right. which, I, which, which piqued my, my, my interest. But I think the thing I, the way I'm involved is I just love the creative challenge and it's a new arena. It's a new set of requirements of the creative work you, you, you come up with. So I couldn't pretend to be a consumer of games, but I sure as hell love being on the creative end of them. 
So it's been um, 26 years since uh, you first brought us beneath the steel sky. Am I correct in the math there? Yep. Are so we going to have to wait for another 20 plus years for uh, a collaboration between you two? Or, or is this uh, going to be a more regular thing? Not at all, because everything has changed. Everything has changed. When, to go back to your previous question, when we, when we launched Beneath the Steel Sky, we became part of something called the 12 Days of Christmas. It was never in the US. It wasn't even that well publicized in Europe. Mm. And on that one day, we had two and a half million downloads. Wow. And, you know, it just blew our minds. And we realized that actually, and the other interesting thing is that even though we gave the game away for free, the next day, sales jumped up and the recognition and, you know, it was quite clear that everything had changed. So I'm afraid that, um, you know, with digital distribution, with ubiquitous uh, broadband, um, to indie developers are just, you know, it, we're, we're in our medium and we'll fight very hard, it, as hard as we possibly can to make sure. And just one, one other thing before I, uh, is that I remember um, wonderful Dave Carroll, who was our, our friend at Apple. He was the developer relations guy. And um, he was saying, oh, the publishers are really lobbying us because they think there ought to be a publisher's uh, app, app store and an indie developer's app store. He said, why on earth would I do that? Yeah. And it was like, this is brilliant. We have a friend. We have a friend. He says, all I care about is the quality of the games. I don't care who made them or who publishes them. And that was just fantastic. And, and long may that relationship, you know, may, may, may that attitude from, from Apple and, and others um, remain. Well, I can't wait to play the game, guys. I think that this is incredibly exciting. It's great news for uh, Apple Arcade. And I know that this is going to be coming to uh, uh, consoles and the PC and stuff. I do have a question, though, before I, I let you guys go. How, how does it play with a, a controller? This is conceived, I think, with um, point-and-click kind of adventure stylings and probably going to translate quite well to touchscreens. But when you sit back, I, I like to play Apple Arcade games on the Apple TV. How does it control with a controller? We are extraordinarily lucky in that adventure games translate really well across all three. So the game can be played on Apple TV um, with, a, with a controller um, or touchscreen or for, for Mac, um, point and click mm. with a mouse and keyboard. Very good. All right, you guys, it comes out uh, very soon. When does, when does the game come out? Uh, very soon. And um, <laughs> Pete, yes, very Pete soon. is your man. Very soon. <laughs> Pete is your man on this. I think it, I think it'll be live by the time that this airs. So, um, uh, congratulations on launching the sequel, the long-awaited sequel. And uh, gentlemen, it has been a real pleasure and a treat to have you in my basement. Thank you so oh, much. Oh well, thank it's you great so stuff. much. Thanks, thanks for inviting us to your basement. And I, I love the toys in the background and the models in the background. They're really cool. Thank this you. Is, yeah. This is what led me on this path, guys. I'm sure you guys have lots. Of, I mean, I see lots of comics and stuff in the background back there. You bet. You bet. <laughs> thanks for letting us into your homes too, you guys. Good luck with the game, Brilliant. and thank you very much. Thanks for watching, everybody. We will see you soon, and until then, play forever. <laughs>